All right, welcome back as we uh, get back to our seats, whether you're at home, some of you at home, get, get back to your seat. We're in a series on the book of, of John, and uh, we're, we've been looking at John, uh, the first part, verses 1 through 18 is what you would call the prologue. It's almost, I mentioned, it's almost like the table of contents, because as you go through the book of the, the first 18 verses of the book of John, it, it's hitting everything that is going to be talked about during the book of John, uh, almost like a table of contents. It's kind of a similar thing. And, uh, and then I mentioned also that it's, it's a, uh, a play on, not a play on words, but, a, but kind of a poetic thing that John does. It's called a chiasm, and it's where he takes verses 1 through 5 and verses like 17 and 18, and they kind of have similar themes, and it all comes together in the verses till you hit 12 and 13, which is the key thing, the key thing about why did Jesus come to earth? Why is it important that He is God? Why is it important that we beheld His glory? Why is it important that He was announced by a forerunner named John? Why are all these things important? What's the purpose of these things? And he tells us in verses 12 and 13, the purpose of these things is so that we can know him. We can know him. What an incredible privilege. And so we're going to continue now. I'm going to hit a couple of things that I think are important in this prologue. And I want to start. Uh, when, I was, uh, when I was in graduate school, uh, sometimes at our graduate school, we, we had a chapel uh, a couple once a week or sometimes twice a week. And sometimes what they would do is during that chapel time, they would turn it over to the students. Um, there would be whatever, a thousand of us there. And uh, they would turn it over to students. People could give testimonies. They could just come up to the front, stand in line, and then, then get on, the, on, a, on a mic and give a testimony to the whole student body. Which, you know, I learned from that that that's not always a really good idea. Because one of the things I learned is one person's joy can be another person's sorrow. The guy got up and he said, someone slipped $5,000 in my mailbox. I have no clue who that person is. And my tuition, my bill is paid. Praise God. And when he said that, a guy next to me uh, that I knew but not close friends, he just muttered, no one's ever done that for me. He looked at me and goes, I work a full-time job to pay my bills. And I was like, one person's joy can be another person's sorrow. Now, we need to learn to be joyful with those who are joyful. We need to learn to sorrow with those who sorrow. But I realized that because one time a guy got up, and he was talking about his walk with God, and, and uh, he was just saying how his life has been exciting in his walk with God. And he said, we spend so much talking, we spend so much time learning about a bunch of doctrines. We just need to focus on Jesus. And I remember one of the professors who was there, who I, I really liked him. We were good friends, and, 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 we, and we did stuff together. And, and uh, as soon as that guy said that, all I saw him do was hold his head in his hand and go, no, no, no. And, and I went and talked to him later, and he was going, he's missed the point. He's missed the point because doctrine is what affects our walk with God. And we cannot see Jesus properly without spending time delving into doctrine. And Scripture's full of it. And this guy just, I, this young man that gave this testimony, he just didn't understand. I think, I mean, he was well-meaning, but he didn't understand. Because we're designed by God to think. We're made that way. And thought always precedes and determines activity. This is not coming up. There it is. Thought always precedes and determines activity. Now, um, if you personalize that, 
then you start to think of it this way. Thought always proceeds and determines activity. My thoughts always proceed and determine my activity. The whole thing about somebody saying, you know, ask them, why'd you do that? I don't know. I just didn't even think about it. No, yeah, you did. Yeah, you did. You thought about it sometime. Maybe not right in that moment. Maybe, maybe a couple of days ago. But you thought about it because you, you voiced those words and, and, and you did that action. And actions are brought about by thoughts. And so when we talk about something like doctrines, and, and we have to understand when we say my thoughts always always proceed and determine my activity. Different people think about things differently and different people respond to stimuli differently. That's what makes us individuals as human beings. We do it differently. We're not robots. We're not all the same. But God has hardwired us to view life through an interpretive grid. And He's also given us His Word to shape the grid. So it begins to change the way we think and work through things. Right? And the Bible is filled with things that we call doctrines, doctrines that define what is good, what is right, and what is true. So it's a book given for life's purposes, to understand life and to understand the author of life. They point out, they explain salvation, they transform our identity, they transform who we are from the inside out, and they give us guidance. And so I want you to see, the first thing is, and this, this actually is just a little rabbit trail we're on real quick about doctrine. Doctrine is a very compact explanation. When we say uh, um, a, a word that's a doctrine, justification, all right? When we say, there it is, justification, there it was, there it is, is. When we say justification, that's a word that, ex- that encompasses a whole lot of things. Now, we do that all the time, right? When you say, I just bought an automobile, I just bought a car, what does that word car mean? You don't say to somebody, they walk up and they go, whoa, that looks great. Yes, I just bought a conveyance mechanism that has a metallic exterior. And it has a power source that uses combustible liquid that is then compressed. And then it is ignited with a spark. And the resulting explosion causes such a quick quick growth that that, that energy then is transformed through a number of mechanical gears tooth-edged things that spin and connect with each other, reaches the rear wheel. They turns them, those rubber things that we have, in, in a counterclockwise correction, and I am impelled forward. No, you don't say that, right? You say, I bought a car. That's what you say. They say, whoa, what is that? That's my car, right? Okay, when we say a word like justification, Justification captures much bigger. What does it talk about? It's, justification is about God's character, which is completely holy, which hates sin. It talks about humanity's need. That is, we need to be rescued. It talks about God's response and His provision you know, through, through His Son, how He responded and provided for our salvation. That's all wrapped up in that one word. See, when you unpack it, it's huge. So this is what doctrines do. When people talk to you about doctrines, this is what doctrines do. You take a word, justification. It means a whole bunch of stuff so that it helps you understand something. So that you don't sit there in front of this big, um, I have a Nissan Cube, which is really just a big metal box. It's just a square, right? You don't, and you don't sit there and have to explain how every little thing works. See that? And because everybody knows it. You just say car. They know what you mean. So justification is what we do for that. Justification then is one of those words that helps us describe what God has done through Jesus. 
to secure our position as children. The other thing is doctrine is not just a compact, compact explanation. Doctrine leads to transformation. It's a means to an end. It enables us to understand what God has done through Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's not to increase information in your life. It's to, it's to facilitate transformation. And so when we understand doctrine, what happens? We begin to properly understand our identity. What does it do? It reshapes our relationships. It reshapes and redirects our finances, our calendar, our words, our hobbies, our leisure, all look different because of doctrine. And so you don't have to think about, you won't think about your past, you won't think about your future in the same way as you become acquainted with the doctrines of the Bible. That's why doctrine is important. That's why doctrine is not stuffy stuff that, that academics talk about in, in, in graduate schools. It's, it's basic street-level stuff that changes the way we live. That's why this is important, because we're going to talk about a doctrine today. All right, we're going to talk about the doctrine of incarnation. And I want to read to you um, John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. It's not, uh, you know, you don't have it, it's not going to be on the screen. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning Him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. I just want to stop there real quick. Uh, I said grace in place of grace already given. That's a weird saying. It's very hard to translate in the Greek because literally it says grace anti-grace. And so now we have a phrase that they used that they understood what it meant, but we're struggling to understand what it means, you know? And it's the same. I use it all the time, you know, my... My uh, illus go-to illustration on this is, uh, I could say a couple of weeks ago, the, wa the, the Washington football team killed the Dallas Cowboys. That was a great day in my life, too. Um, the Washington football team killed the Dallas Cowboys. All right, imagine linguists a thousand years from now. They've just figured out how to speak English. They read that sentence. What a barbaric culture. They murdered people for sport. You can't believe it, Right? It's a phrase we totally understand, but if you take it literally, it, it's horrific. It doesn't, sometimes it doesn't mean... So this is a phrase they totally understood. What we understand basically from this phrase when he says grace, anti-grace, is that there, you, you have this grace and you have this need and the grace covers it, but then suddenly you get a bigger need. And now more grace covers it. And Scripture tells us that God's grace is unending. There's no bottom to it. There's no end to it. It's greater than all our sins. But as, as things come in our lives and grace covers and grace covers and grace covers, it grows bigger. So it's kind of this idea, grace, anti-grace is this idea that when grace is like, it, oh no, it's not going to be enough, more grace comes. More grace comes. Think about your life. He's saying there will be times when you will think this is it. This is, I can't go on. This is horrific. This is a tragedy. This is a, I'm so depressed. I'm so, and God's got more grace for you. He's got more. There never, it never runs out. There is no end to it. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the father has made him known. So we're going to talk about the doctrine of incarnation, and we're going to hone in right now on this verse. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. 
Word came flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Okay, this resonates with us, I think, because this has been a story since the beginning of time. J.R.R. Tolkien wrote about this. He told, talks about how all really good stories follow a pattern. There's this pattern. There's this idea that maybe life was good, you know, or something was great. And then and, and there was a great king. And then something happened. The king is gone. Tragedy. Everything falls to pieces. And then someday the king returns and sets it all right. Man, all good westerns follow something like that. All good science fiction follows something like that. Some of the great old Beowulf, Robin Hood, all kinds of stories follow that. Even, even when you get into obscure li- literature, the, the, the Kalevala, which is Finnish, uh, Finnish myth, it, it follows the same. The, there was this, it was great, and then it fell apart, and we're waiting for the king, or the king has come, and it's all been set right. And what... Uh, Tolkien is saying is all those stories point to a greater truth. The greater truth all those stories point to and why they're in our hearts and why they stir our hearts is because they point to Jesus, the real king. Everything was good. And then we rebelled. We turned our backs and it turned into ruin and frustration. And sin was introduced into the world. But in John in, in, in Genesis 3.16, it's basically Jesus saying, I'll be back. I'm coming back. I'm coming back. And so that's the story. All those stories point to the great story. And in John 1, what is John saying? He's back. He's saying, he's not saying, he's back. He's saying, he's back. He's back. He's here. The king has come. He's retaking his creation one heart at a time. And with each heart, there's this explosion of joy and glory. Scripture tells us this in Luke 15.10 when it talks about it's the parable of the lost coin. And the word, uh, Luke 15.10, there it is. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, this is a little interesting. In those days, rabbis had a saying. And, and this is what they're saying was, there is rejoicing in heaven when one sinner goes to hell. And Jesus flips it. See, that's why he says this, because he's speaking to a particular truth that they thought was true. And he says, I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. There's rejoicing in the presence. That word is before them. That is, God starts rejoicing. God starts rejoicing. And if you do a study in the Old Testament and the New Testament of God rejoicing, you come across some interesting words. You come across words that mean to dance like you can't stay still. The other day, uh, yesterday, was one of my grandsons, his birthday. And we gave him a couple of little presents. But one thing that happened was his his aunt, Reagan, she gave him a giant... It's a giant wrapped, one of those dumb, dumb suckers. And when you open it up, it's just got a whole bunch inside it. But when you see it, it looks like it's the most giant sucker you've ever seen. And that little three-year-old kid was like, <laughs> and he just I want to eat it. You know, why? Because he had joy that was translated into action through his body. He couldn't control it. That's one of the words that is used for God rejoicing over you. 
I, I hate to even do it because it seems sacrilegious to say, God gets crazy over you. And one of the words, too, is to yell and scream with delight. That's a word in Hebrew that's used for God over you. And here, God starts rejoicing in front of all the angels over you, over me. And so when we say here this, this idea of the doctrine of the incarnation, it's this idea that the king has returned for a specific reason to rescue his own, to change the world one heart at a time. The king has come. He's calling for us to join him and help change the world. The word became flesh. That is this idea that eternity broke through the wall into reality. The Word became flesh. He's one of us. But natural question here is, so what? Why? So what's the deal? Well, what's the purpose of the incarnation? There it is. And that just goes right back to that same verse, verse 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who became, came from the Father, full of grace and truth. We see His glory. We see His glory. Now, that is a momentous statement. We're used to it. It doesn't strike us that big. But let me, let me try to, try to uh, illustrate that to you. Um, In the early, early, in the mid-1940s, Robert Oppenheimer, who was the father of the atomic bomb, witnessed the first explosion of an atomic bomb. And he said this, he quoted a, a writing, he said, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. Why? He was overwhelmed at the magnitude of what they had just accomplished, and he realized the horrific consequences of an atomic bomb. And it broke him. He said he wept openly. He said some of the other scientists were cheering. It worked. It worked. And he was going, it did work. And I am so afraid. Because the magnitude of the event. Now, we see that. We see an atomic bomb. We're used to atomic bombs. We've lived with atomic bombs since the 1940s. We don't understand the magnitude of it. On July the 20th, 1969, at 10.56, Neil Armstrong stepped out on the moon's surface. I was a kid then, and my dad, who had been involved in the, quite a bit in the NASA program, said, we're going to stay up and watch this. He wanted me to stay up and watch it. And um, when the lunar lander descended, and then when Neil Armstrong stepped out, um, my, dad, my dad was speechless. He was somber. Uh, he usually enjoyed talking about the space program and how he was involved with it. Um, and it was just really quiet. And he's stepping out and he says those famous words, you know, and you're hand back and forth. And I'm like, wow, Dad, this is pretty cool. And, uh, and he would say, son, you don't, you don't understand how momentous this is. He said, you don't understand. 30 to 40 people gave their lives during the space program to get to this point. I know some of those. I knew some of those people. I know these men. This will change the world. This is the culmination of what all these people gave their lives for. 
And so it was a momentous, but why? Because he understood much better than I did what went into making that happen and how powerful that was. And so when we make a statement, when we read a statement, I should say, like John 1.14, the word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. That is a jaw-dropping statement, especially for Jews. Why? Because that brings to mind things that they know. Like Moses saying, I want to see you. And God saying to Moses, it will kill you. You go stand in a corner with a rock over you and face the other way. I'll pass by and just give you a tiny glimpse of my glory. And, and, and Moses was like radioactive for a period of time because of it. Jews understood this. To them, it would be like one of us saying, yeah, I, I went out to one of those test ranges where they set off an atomic bomb, and I just stood right in the middle of it. And we'd go, no, no, you didn't, because you'd be a tiny bit of dust if you had. We understand what an atomic bomb will do. We understand how it vaporizes everything within a certain range. You would not stand in the middle of it. So for, for John to say, we've seen his glory, Jews are like, man, you, nah, that's crazy. You can't do that. That's like standing in the middle of an atomic explosion. You can't do that. But we take it for granted, right? We think of it like sitting in the living room, drinking coffee with a donut, you know, chestnuts roasting by the, by the open fire, you know, just kind of take it for granted that we've seen the glory of God, that we've seen God through Jesus. But the Jewish people said, no, no, that's a very dangerous thing. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. That's verse 18. That's what it's telling us. They would immediately think of Moses, not because God is mean or vindictive that his glory is so powerful. It's because God's glory, his holiness is the source of all things. It's the center of all things. When things work correctly, it's because they're relating to the center correctly. If you have a watch, the key thing to a watch is the power source. All the gears that are in the watch run off the power source. They need it to work properly. The power source goes, everything stops. Greatest gears, best, you know, best workmanship in the world doesn't work without the power source because it's the center of it. It's the center of all things. And so for us, we have to start to think. This is what the incarnation is calling to us. It's saying, what's the center of things for you? What's your center? When you decide, when you do something, what's the deciding factor? Truth, righteousness, justice, God. We may think about those things, but oftentimes the center for us, the bottom line for us is this, our happiness our comfort. That's the bottom line for us. We know it's the bottom line for us because have you ever done something purposely that was not comfortable? That's really hard. It's really hard to do something purposely that's not comfortable. We think of this. We think, does it fulfill me? Does it please me? Does it give me honor? Does it give me joy? Does it make me feel better? So God says the best way is when everything centers on Him, when things center on holiness, on truth, on righteousness. But we don't do that. We let dirt get in the gears so that then now there's friction and there's problems and gears wobble and things don't work right. 
when the average person in our society is confronted with the, with the claims of Christ, there's oftentimes there's a pushback. I get this. When I talk to people, they say, well, okay, so if there's a God, why do you let this happen? Why do you let this happen to me if there's a God? There, there's fear, there's guilt, there's anger. Even though at the deepest level we kind of wish it was true, there's this, there's this pushback. Don't tell me about that. If that's true, then why this? Why that? But deep down inside of us, in our hearts, there's a longing to know and to be known, to not have to put on faces, to not have to put on masks. And so, even though the glory of God is fatal, we get to see it. And how? Because of Jesus. Jesus is God and man. He's a real human. That's the only way the sins of humankind could be dealt with. And he's really God. Because of his death, his blood has infinite value to take care of an infinite number of sins. And so scripture teaches we're purchased by his own blood. Now we have this un unbelievable privilege that is the magnitude of it. it. We're so used to it, we just have lost. We've lost the vision of what we're dealing with. We have this unbelievable privilege to be his, to be known by him, to know him, to approach him face to face, face to face. Scripture talks about that in a number of times. And it gives this idea, gives this idea that, that when we pray, somehow in some way we're face to face with God. Um, I mean, sometimes as I was raising my children, especially if I needed to deal with something or if I needed to apologize about something, I tried to remember to get down on one knee so that I got down to their level. So it wasn't me talking down, adult talking down to child. I'd get on their level and get face to face so that we communicated. God says he does that to us. That's what happens. That's part of being known by him. So that when you pray, I mean, this is how I imagine it. I'm sure this is the way it is in heaven. Um, that when you pray, you know, God's there in the angel, the choir, there's harps playing, you know, whatever's going on. And, and, and let's say you, you start to pray. Let's say I start to pray. I say, God, I'm really struggling with something. And God's like, hey, if, if, uh, Peter, John, you guys, shut up. Listen, my son, Bob, is talking to me. What is it? And I say, I'm so miserable. Man, uh, my knees hurt. And everything's, um, people don't like me. You know, and I know I got a lot of good stuff going on, but all I see is the bad stuff. And God's like, I know you're an idiot, but I love you. And I want to know what you're thinking. Tell me. Talk to me. Tell me. He loves that. He loves that. Face to face. We have that privilege now. The God of the universe shushes everyone and listens to you. That's an amazing thing. What does that do? What does that do to a person when they grapple with that and they really take it to heart? Well, we see what happened to Paul. What did Paul say? He says, all these things are slight momentary afflictions. Now, if you read what happened to Paul, they don't fit my category of slight momentary afflictions, right? A hangnail is a slight momentary affliction for me. Being whipped with a whip is not. That's what happened to Paul. Being stoned is not. And he says, these are slight momentary afflictions. Based on the focus, 
because he focused on the incomparable joy that's coming. They are outweighed by it. He got a glimpse of the glory, and he says, oh my goodness, none of this matters. I think about this, you know, remember the joyous moments in your life? We have all kinds of different people here, all kinds of different people listening. But remember the, the, those, those joy times. Maybe it was the first time you, you felt like you really loved somebody. You know, maybe, maybe you're in middle school or high school, but you just, oh, this person. And, and there was a joy in that. Maybe it was when you got your first car. Maybe it was the day you were married. Maybe it was the birth of a child. Maybe it was when you landed a great job, the job you always wanted. These are merely glimpses of the greater joy that's coming. These are not the joy. They point to the joy. It's like God is saying, you think that's great? Look what's coming. Look what I'm doing. You're talking to me. That's greater. You taste these things, and they make you want more. But they just point to the ultimate joy and to the ultimate joy giver. Have you ever noticed that sometimes when you feel down, or maybe you feel purposelessness in your life, maybe you're just unhappy and you're not exactly sure why, because you could look around and you go, man, things are going, I got nothing to be unhappy about. I got nothing to be depressed about. My life is going pretty good. I mean, I look around the world, there's people who have much more, and, and yet you still feel it, right? You still feel it. You feel that way and you think, I must be crazy. I need, to go, I need to go get some therapy. I need somebody to help me, right? And the therapist is going to try to, you know, you, you're going a little crazy. Let's get you back to sane, right? Well, what does God say about that? You know what he says? He says, no, 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 you're sane. You're seeing the world as it is. You're realizing that those things won't do for you what you thought they'd do for you. You're in a good place. Because now you can start looking for something that will do for you, that will, that will be the place where you'll find peace and comfort and joy and purpose in your life. You're not going insane. You're going sane when you feel that way. Because you're seeing things the way they, they really are because those things are not the joy. They only point to the joy, and they cannot sustain you. They point to, we have seen His glory. Jesus is the king, and he wants to be known by us. If you go for those things, they will never be what you hope they'll be, and you will ruin them. If you elevate a person to, to the point to where they are your joy, you've put them on a pedestal, they, they, it's unfair to put them on. They can never be that for you. You will always be disappointed at one time or another. You can't do that, because then you crush them with your expectations. So, thinking about this, just a couple of thoughts when we talk about the incarnation of Jesus and what it means. We need to meet Jesus. If you haven't, you need to. It's not a moral self-help course. God is not some idea that's just good for people in general. He's someone to be seen, someone to be met this is not about going to church. This is not about saying prayers. This is not about being a good person. It's about meeting a person. It's about knowing him. The second thought I have is, if you know him, you need to start thinking about his glory. You need to think about 
its impact in your life. You have to ask yourself, does God stir you? Do you long for more of Him? Do you want to live for Him, serve Him? Do His truths move you? Sometimes when you hear something or, or you read something and you go, that's incredible. Does it move you? Do you go, I want more of that. That's what I want. Now, these things don't mean, when I ask these questions, it doesn't mean you're not a Christian. But it might mean you need to go to him. It might mean there needs to be some repentance. Get things right. Ask yourself, what's keeping me from him? Am I too busy? Am I too distracted? Is there some resentment? Is there disobedience? Be honest and try to figure out what's holding me back, what's killing my joy. The third thing I think about in this is we need to repent of our unbelief. Because probably for many of us, there's some people you've given up on. There's some areas in your life that you've given up on. There's some situations that you've quit on. And you're starting to believe that nothing can change. And that nothing could be further from the truth. Um, one of my favorite plays is called Man of La Mancha. Man of La Mancha, um, if you know it, you know it's a great play. But if you don't, it's a great play. Trust me on that one. It's about a man. He calls himself Don Quixote. And he is a crazy man. He goes crazy. And he decides he's going to be a knight. He's going to go on a quest as, as a knight. And knights have long since passed. And he goes and he sees an inn. He gets a man to be a squire. He goes and he sees an inn. And, and he just, it's, he talks like he's out of it. He's, oh, a castle. Let me go talk to the lord of the castle. You know, and he goes in. And it's just an old, dirty inn in the 1600s. And there's a woman serving tables. And her name is Aldonza. And he says, oh, my lady, I will fight for you. I will conquer for you. I will kill dragons for you. And she's like, this is a crazy man, you know. And so people are kind of putting up with him because they just realize he's crazy. And uh, he tells her, you are a royal lady and your real name is Dulcinea. And he treats her like royalty. And she begins to hate it. Finally, at one point, she's screaming at him, look at me. Because in reality, she waits on tables and she's a prostitute. I'm nothing. My parents are from the gutter. I'm from the gutter. I'm in the gutter. I'll never get out of the gutter because I am a worthless person. Stop calling me Dulcinea. Stop treating me like I'm special. I'm not. And she's furious and she yells at him. So things happen. Finally, towards the end, he's dying. Years later, he's dying. And as he lay dying, she shows up. And she's cleaned up. And she looks healthier. And she says to him, I'm Dulcinea. I'm not in the gutter. I'm not worthless. I have changed. And it's an interesting thing to me. I love that, I love that idea, you know. He's, he, he's crazy, and yet he sees something that he can pull out of her. And there's, there's an interesting part of this story. I want to just read this to you. He says this at the end of his life. I have lived nearly 50 years, and I have seen life as it is. Pain, misery, hunger, cruelty beyond belief. 
I've heard the singing from the taverns and the moans from the bundles of filth in the streets. I have been a soldier and seen my comrades fall in battle. I have held them in my arms at the final moment. These were men who saw life as it is, yet they died despairing. No glory, no gallant last words, only their eyes filled with confusion, whimpering the question, why? I do not think they asked why, because why they were dying, he says, but because why had they lived? When life itself seems lunatic, who knows where madness lies? Perhaps to be too practical is madness. To surrender dreams, that is madness. To seek treasure where there is only trash, that is madness. Too much sanity is madness. And then he says this, and maddest of all, to see life as it is and not as it should be. To have no hope. To see life just as it is. To be cynical about everything. No one changes. I've seen this before. You try to help these people. Nothing changes. Be cynical. To be mired in practical reality. And he says, and to be insane. You may think you're being realistic, but that's not true. Jesus, the ideal, he's the way things ought to be. He's the way we hope things would be. He's the way things could be. And he broke through into reality. He's invaded our space. And he's brought that with him. He's come into the where the way things are, this world as it is right now. And he's changing it one heart at a time. And change is possible because of Jesus. You may feel at a point in your life, at this point, at this point in your life, there's no possibility for change. And Jesus is saying there's always a possibility for change when I'm involved. Anything can happen. Nothing is impossible when I'm involved. We cannot be cynics. We cannot, we cannot just be hopeless. Jesus came down and now came into our lives. There are aldonzas all around you who are really dulcineas. They just can't find it. And you need to treat them like royalty because they're created in the image of the king. And if they turn to royalty, they become a child of the king. They are heirs. They become royal. And we have been given a new name because of our standing with Jesus Christ. Jesus has said, I came back for you. I came back for you. And that is the real king. You know, our problem is, remember when you were little and you saw movies or you read books or you heard songs or you saw stories and, and, and they were exciting and they thrilled your heart. And, and I can remember watching, you know, like with Peter Pan, I wish I could fly. And then I grew up. And I put away that. And Jesus is saying, you can fly. You can fly. Because all those stories Point to me, he says. Jesus is the real king who came back. He's, he's the real Superman. He's the real Mulan. He's the real King Arthur. He's the real Aragorn. He's the real Elsa. I wasn't sure about that one. That wasn't mentioned. He's the real Robin Hood. He's the real Wonder Woman. All those stories point 
to him. Why do we love them? Because it stirs our heart. Deep in our heart we know, that's what I want. I want a king. I want a savior. I want a ruler who loves me deeply and cares for me. That's what I want. I want to have a purpose in my life so that when I walk on this earth, I'm not just living in reality, giving in to being a cynic. I want meaning in my life so that I know that what I do counts. I want love in my life. I want joy in my life. I want peace. I want to be content. Those stir our heart. Those stories, they stir our heart. We were made this way. That's why we keep making stories like that. You would think we'd grow out of it. And we try to, but our heart won't let us. We still love those stories. We still love those stories. And so, what moved you, what you always wanted as a child, it's still possible in Jesus Christ. He wants you to be a part of the greatest mission that a human being can be a part of, to change the world. We have just been through a political season that has been divisive and difficult. But we have to remember this. Politicians are not going to change our world that very much. You have within you the power of Jesus Christ, the power of the resurrection. No president, no prime minister, no king, no queen, no ruler has that kind of power. The power you have in you. And I, I don't get me wrong. We should be good citizens. We should vote. But you know what? We should be above that, good Christians, because voting once every four years or once every two years is not enough. We have to be the people who pursue the plan of God, the justice of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God, the righteousness of God all the time. That's what will change things. That's what will change, and not necessarily change them the way we want things to be changed, but it will change them the way God wants things to be changed, and that's where I want to be. I want to do what God wants. I want to practice mercy and grace. I want to pursue justice and righteousness. I want to be a light in this world. And so, this doctrine of incarnation, what does it tell us? What's something it tells us? It tells us, use your life. Use your resources. Use your talents to change the world for Jesus Christ. Whatever it is you do, use your abilities to change the world for Jesus Christ. That will bring lasting change in people's lives. Nothing else will. That's what He calls us to do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for your spirit that applies these truths to our heart. Lord, these things can move us. Help us not to leave here and just forget, but to allow you to work on us, to make us, to be people who will make a difference in this world. Wherever we are, whether it's the shipyard, whether it's class, whether it's in our homes, whether, what, wherever, wherever you happen to take us, Lord, let us use that to change the world one person at a time, one heart at a time, to be your children, to help you find that lost sheep, to help you find that lost coin, to help you greet that lost son. And then, Lord, we get to have this incredible privilege of being a part of the explosion of joy that occurs in heaven and on earth. We thank you for that. 
Help us to understand the magnitude of these things that we're talking about. In Jesus' name, amen.